The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, we have made it through another House Budget Week, Katie Lannon, and after four days of deliberations of the House version of the fiscal 2019 budget when all was said and done, we only saw actual debate on one or two aspects of the spending bill. Yeah, that's right, Sam. Throughout the course of the week, the House added more than $81 million in spending to its budget, but much of that was the product of backroom deals and past with near or complete total agreement. One of the the few times we did hear folks get real fired up was not so much a a spending issue, but a a policy issue. And that was when Andover Republican Rep Jim Lyons proposed adding in a section that would allow state and local law enforcement agencies to hold a person suspected of immigration violations without a warrant, particularly if that person's subject of of an ICE detainer. And Jim Lyons got up and argued in favor. A few of his Republican colleagues joined him. But you did have some Democrats raising concerns that that could lead to profiling, could strain already limited local law enforcement resources, and ultimately only 10 people voted in favor of that amendment. It was soundly defeated. And uh, it was policy changes that we tended to hear more about on the floor, as opposed to details of the spending proposals. That's right. There are a few policy amendments that people got up and touted. Um, Among them, a a pretty interesting one that will have spending ramifications in future years, though won't take effect um, this upcoming fiscal year, is the lifting of a cap on welfare benefits for children who are conceived while the family's already receiving assistance. Um, Rep. Marjorie Decker, Cambridge Democrat, gave a really impassioned speech before that talking about how she was a legislative aide when that cap was put in place and felt powerless as herself, the child of a low-income family, that that statement was being made about her and people like her. Another interesting one uh, from the other side of the aisle, the House adopted an amendment to kind of address an 1820s statue that limits the housing of pretrial detainees along with people already convicted of a crime. Turns out, um, Falmouth Republican Rep. David Vieira Notice that in his district, that translated into some residential substance use treatment programs not being made available anymore to pretrial detainees. So those will be some policies we should be watching for next month when the Senate takes up its budget. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. The scandal that rocked the state Senate last year landed Brian Hefner in Suffolk Superior Court on Tuesday, pleaded not guilty to a total of 10 charges. His estranged husband, Senator Rosenberg, has been the subject of an ethics inquiry And uh, Andy Metzger, you've been covering this. Have we learned anything new this week? We did. Uh, Hefner was indicted in March, but those charges didn't provide a lot of detail about about what he was alleged to have done. Um, Some of those gaps were filled in by a document known as a statement of the case that was made public on Tuesday right after Hefner's court appearance. These are unproven allegations, but they describe Hefner repeatedly groping one one man's groin, even after he was told to stop forcibly kissing another man at a roof deck party, groping and exposing himself to a third man, and then distributing nude photos taken of a, a fourth man without his knowledge or consent. 
Uh, the photos were taken at a conference outside of Massachusetts, according to the Attorney General's office, um, which won't say exactly where they were taken. So Hefner is contesting these allegations, at least for now. Do we know how he's going to uh, lay out his defense? We got an inkling. Uh, Hefner's attorney, Tracy Minor, issued a statement where she said she looks forward to cross-examining the witnesses whose identity would be exposed, at least to the court, if the case goes to trial. Uh, those four victims have not been identified. Uh, the allegations stem from a Boston Globe article that reported anonymous accusations against Hefner, and the prosecution has not identified the accusers yet either. If they took the stand, they would have to identify themselves to the court, although it's generally the practice of news organizations not to name victims of sexual assault, so it's possible they could maintain at least a modicum of privacy, even if they do need to testify. Got it. So, Andy, what's next on the docket? There's a pretrial conference scheduled for June 13th, and the trial date is March 25th, 2019. Uh, those dates do tend to move around, um, and there's always a possibility of a plea agreement. So the trial would happen after the November elections? That's right, uh, if it happens at all. All right, we'll stay tuned. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Sam. In another blow to charter school advocates, the Supreme Judicial Court this week upheld the dismissal of a case challenging the state's cap on charter schools. Mike Norton, what happened over at the SJC on Tuesday? Well, Sam, in a unanimous decision, the court basically said the plaintiffs, five students attending underperforming schools in Boston, had failed to state a claim for relief under the education and equal protection clauses of the Constitution. It wasn't so much that the court disagreed that charters are a potentially valuable option for students. Instead, they said the plaintiffs had not adequately shown that the state is not improving education over time, which if you think about it, is a, it's a difficult thing to illustrate uh, with total conviction. And the justices observed, really, that the issue of improving education is one for the legislature to deal with, which the House and Senate, they know that all too well. So what's next in the charter school debate? Well, Sam, the ruling is the latest in a series of strikes against the charter movement. Two years ago, the legislature made clear that they were not on board with efforts to lift caps on charters. Then in November 2016, voters statewide defeated a ballot question calling for an expansion of charters, despite heavy spending from the pro-charter side. So the courts appeared to sort of be the last hope here, and in what they really did was deliver strike three. As far as the 2018 session on Beacon Hill, it's not shaping up as a big one for changes in education policy. And reformers appear to have moved away from the charter push and onto the idea of establishing innovation partnership zones, which bear some semblance to the characteristics of charters. So in these zones, underperforming schools would be governed by a board of directors and granted some autonomy over curriculum, budget, schedules, and staffing. In the meantime, charter proponents will have to pursue expansion the old-fashioned way just by going through the Board of Education's application process. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Sam. Well, we're getting ready for a Saturday in the heart of the Commonwealth. Heading out to the DCU Center in Worcester for the State Republican Convention tomorrow. And uh, Matt Murphy, one of the things we're going to be looking for is... Uh, what vision the governor might lay out for a second term. That's right. I think one of the big stories we'll be watching tomorrow when we are in Worcester is the governor's speech to the convention and whether or not the governor is going to stick to something more akin to his State of the Commonwealth address in January when he uh, sort of gave a recitation of what he sees as his administration's accomplishments over the past four years, or if he's going to go further and really lay out a case for another four years and put some meat on the bone of what a second term Charlie Baker wants to do. 
And there are a few candidates for U.S. Senate that we're going to be hearing from. What might we expect from them? Of course, that's the other big story and a little more straightforward here. There are five candidates running for U.S. Senate who will address the convention, but really three major players in State Rep. Jeff Deal, former Romney and Scott Brownie, Beth Lindstrom, and businessman John Kingston. And the first order of business for them will be securing the 15% of the delegates they need to qualify for the ballot in September for the primary. Uh, and once, if they can achieve that, which uh, most expect all three probably will, then it's winning the convention and conventional wisdom has rep jeff deal perhaps with an edge among the more conservative delegates that tend to go to these conventions but uh lindstrom and and kingston also have their supporters and and lindstrom certainly coming in with a lot of momentum she's been picking up a lot of endorsements from state gop lawmakers of late all right thanks matt we'll uh, we'll see you in the woo thanks sam <laughs> With only around five weeks to go until the Democratic State Convention, the Democratic field of candidates for governor got a little smaller this week, with former Newton Mayor Seti Warren's withdrawal from the race. So, Colin Young, what does this mean for the race? Well, the most obvious thing that it means for the race, Sam, is that uh, there are now only two Democrats for voters uh, to choose from uh, as their nominee for governor. Uh, and I think maybe more importantly, uh, Seti Warren's withdrawal from the race uh, is really an indication of just how difficult it's been for, for these Democrats uh, to break through and, and, and get some attention from voters. Uh, and in Seti Warren's case, at least, um, to break through and get some money from donors. Uh, he cited cash as his uh, biggest challenge in this race for governor. And he determined this week that that challenge is just insurmountable. Uh, he said in a statement early Thursday morning announcing his withdrawal, quote, the money just isn't there to run the kind of campaign I want to run. Now, in mid-April, Seti Warren's campaign account had just over $51,000 in it. Uh, the governor, Charlie Baker, the popular Republican incumbent, uh, had more than 152 times that amount in his war chest. He has about uh, $7.89 million cash on hand. So if Seti Warren said he dropped out for a lack of funds, how are Massey and Gonzalez doing? Well, that's the thing. The other two Democratic candidates in the race, uh, Jay Gonzalez and Bob Massey, uh, neither one has, has really raked in the dough, so to speak. Uh, Jay Gonzalez has outpaced his Democratic counterparts. At least as of mid-April, he had uh, just more than $127,000 uh, in his campaign account. And Bob Massey trailed back in third with almost $21,000 cash on hand. Uh, so this has been an issue for all three Democrats who, who had been in the race and seems like it will continue to be an issue for the two, two Democrats who remain. Uh, and, of course, uh, Bob Massey was the 1994 Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. Uh, and Jay Gonzalez, interestingly enough, has sort of uh, uh, shared the same trajectory as Charlie Baker, the man he's trying to replace. Gonzalez is a former state budget chief who left the Patrick administration to run a health insurance company. Uh, of course, in the 90s, Baker worked for the Weld and Salucci administrations before leaving to run Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Thanks, Colin. Thanks a lot, Sam. Have a good weekend. You too. Any recommendations for where we should go when we're in Worcester? Vincent's on Suffolk Street. Lots of taxidermy, cold gansett, and great meatball <laughs> subs. Uh, those are the three things I look for. Great. <laughs> Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. 
See you next week.